you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm so excited to have you in this week's episode because we have rarely done hotel episodes. And this one is all about hospitality from a hotel perspective. My guest this week, Mr. Ron Gorodiski, and he is a 30 plus year veteran of hospitality. And now he is the founder and CEO of a company called Refined Hospitality that develops and manages destination hotels, boutique curated hotels. We're going to be talking all about his leadership style, about staff training and the importance and how that is so related to delivering superior guest service experiences that he would call exemplary experiences and how during the pandemic properties sold out which is incredible. We're going to learn all about that. So really, this is about staff, the foundation of your business, how you train them, how you deliver amazing experiences. And we'll also be covering restaurants because these hotel properties also have restaurant operations. So thanks to this week's sponsor, Dawn Professional Dish Liquid. Don't miss the episode. Listen up. Welcome back, everyone, to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, deliver amazing guest service experiences, and, of course, cover hospitality. I'm really excited today. I have Mr. Ron Gorodiski. He's the founder of the CEO of a company called Refined Hospitality that runs very nice um, upper scale hotels, you might say, but he's got an illustrious 30 plus year career also as a developer of restaurants and a consultant. Welcome to the show today, Ron. How are you? Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely excited to have you here. You know, restaurant owner operators, hoteliers, I mean, they work lots and lots of hours. They're really committed to what they do. And I don't need to tell you that, but I like people to be inspired. And I know you're going to be a really inspiring guest, but unfortunately, a lot of operators don't really find that that elusive exit strategy. Whatever that means to them, they can't really, you know, get out of their business. You know, they're working in their business, not on their business. So I want to talk about your philosophies there. But let's start with passion. I know you've got a passion for hospitality. I'm going to get your definition of that word a little bit later in the interview. But aside from running restaurants and running hotels, that's your vocation. And it's clearly a passion. you got a passion for hospitality, food and drink, all those things. What else would you do if you weren't doing this? What feeds your soul? What are you really all about? What makes you tick? Well, you used the word passion. Passion is what drives, it's what drives me. And frankly, if, it, if, if what you're doing in your life isn't driving you, then you should probably do something else. Um, it's funny. I, I, I often wonder what I would do if I was not in the hospitality business, uh, because I actually, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. My mother wanted me to be a lawyer, uh, and uh, I I fell into hospitality at age twelve, and you know it's been many years since then, and I haven't looked back. Uh, if I if I, I was also very uh, uh, interested in music when I was a kid, so if I hadn't gone into hospitality, I might have become a professional musician because I I always enjoyed the music part of my life as well. I still do. Uh, do you play an instrument? Do you sing? I mean, what part of music do you enjoy and, and how does that fit into what you do now? Well, I, I don't sing, fortunately for anybody listening out there. Uh, I do play 
uh, the keyboards. Um, mm-hmm. I actually, when I was a kid, I used to write music and, um, and you know, you'll, it's funny because when you, when you look at all the great artists of across all types of art, uh, you'll find that most artists did most of their great work before they were 25 years old. Um, and, uh, you know, so um, that's, that, that was my passion when I was a kid. And, and I, and I kind of brought that to the hospitality business uh, by uh, in, in, in the way that we create spaces. Uh, there's a lot of art and music incorporated into our spaces. Yes, uh, and of course, having, Having something feel a certain way when you're in a space is all about what hospitality is for me. I totally get that. Is there a particular genre of music that you were interested in that continues to influence you? Because perhaps that genre may or may not be the types of ambiance you create in your properties. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. <laughs> it's really funny you ask that question because um, I, my, uh, uh, 28-year-old daughter says I have the music taste of a of a teenage girl. Um, you know, because I like EDM. Um, I, I I like a wide variety of music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, as a younger as a younger man, I was really into Springsteen, and I still am. Um, so I really I like everything from classical uh, through rock and roll. Um, it's a rap to EDM. Uh, I spent, uh, really enjoyed, you know, that part, you know, dur- during the disco era. Um, so I, I got into that as well. Um, so I don't have a particular genre of music that I'm attracted to because yeah. I really love it all. Well, you're pretty, it sounds like you're a pretty progressive guy then, Ron. That's, that's pretty amazing. You know, it's interesting. I've got two teenage daughters and obviously they're into newer music, but interestingly they both still like queen and we all watched bohemian rhapsody the other night and they were into great, it great movie you know so that's, yep. that's fantastic so let's talk about you've had an illustrious career so prior to refined hospitality you had 30 plus years at restaurant advisory services as a consultant but also did you you developed concepts as well yeah so if we go back even a little further, please do. Um, Let's take us back to the very beginning. Where did it all begin for you? The hospitality <laughs> thing, the food and drink thing. I mean, as a teenager, you talked about age twelve and and all that. Where does it really begin for you? Well, actually, um, it started uh, when I was working in my dad's wood shop mm-hmm. uh, because when I was eight years old, my dad said to me, "What are you doing with your weekends?" I said, "I don't know, Dad. I'm eight. <laughs> and he said, "Well, you're going to spend one day a week." with me in my wood shop uh, until you get a job. And I spent one day, usually a Saturday on the weekend, I would go to the wood shop and, I, and he paid me a dollar an hour and I couldn't wait to get out. Uh, and, uh, um, and when I was 12, I rode my bicycle down to the corner deli and asked them for a job and they hired me for double what my dad was paying me. At two, I was making $2 an hour and I became a dishwasher uh, in a deli. And I actually worked in that deli all the way through college, uh, being a dishwasher, a busboy, a waiter, a line cook, uh, you know, a, a, a deli man, uh, cashier. I held just about every position. Uh, and all during this time, I was thinking that I probably wasn't going to be a musician because there wasn't a lot of money in it. My mother was pushing me towards law. Uh, and I, I ended up spending half my senior year in high school working for a lawyer. 
And I decided I didn't want to do that. So when I got to Penn State and I realized that there was a, a major in hospitality management, I, it just naturally pulled me in. Uh, and once I found hospitality, I, I never looked back, not for a day. You know, that's really interesting. I would have never guessed, you know, decades ago that I would be in this particular business or career either. But interestingly, just like you, I started off as a dishwasher as a teenager at a country club. And it was a private club. So the members obviously were, you know, somewhat sophisticated people. And I learned very early on that obviously great service equated to great tips. But it went deeper than just the money. It's like I built relationships with these people and giving them great <laughs> service gave me a point of pride. And I've literally built a company around service and hospitality, you know? So who knew where that was going to begin? But we, we share that common, that common thread. So You find your passion and you, you yeah. follow it and here we are. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about restaurant advisory services. Uh, so... Let me let me continue the career because I'll kind of get you to there. To okay, how we please got do. To, to Very good. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, um, so what happened was uh, when I graduated from Penn State, I went to work for Marriott uh, and worked in three hotels uh, for them, and and then I I followed my heart uh, back to Philadelphia because I had a girlfriend there, and of course, as soon as I got back home, she broke up with me. Uh, but I ended up working for a um, for a guy named Steve Morgan, uh, who had uh, a restaurant and, and hotel, I'm sorry, a restaurant and nightclub called Alon and the Brasserie, which at the time in the early 80s was actually a really popular nightclub uh, and restaurant. So I ended up working there um, and I was um, very quickly drawn into being an entrepreneur. I ended up uh, uh, you know, leaving to start a catering business, which I did for a couple of years. And in 1984, uh, I went to work for an accounting firm called Laventhal and Horwath, which at the time was actually the ninth largest accounting firm in the world. I've heard but of it. Also, yeah, but, but also the largest hospitality consulting firm in the world. Uh, and I learned uh, my trade at Laventhal. I was there for six years. Uh, out of the Philadelphia office, um, I developed a reputation in restaurants because my passion was drawn primarily to the food and beverage side of the business as opposed to the hotel side of the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but but while I was at Laventhal, I learned a lot of our clients were developing restaurants and hotels. And I um, I glommed on to that part of the business and um, quickly developed a reputation in that. So again, my entrepreneurial spirit uh, took over in 1990. Um, I left. Laventhal to start Restaurant Advisory Services, uh, which was a consulting firm uh, for hospitality. Um, but over time, I, I very, I very much began to get called into developing restaurants for clients, uh, and uh, on a fee. So I was said, I was told like, "Hey, I got an idea for a restaurant. I've got a chef. Uh, I don't have a business guy. I don't understand. I don't know." Uh, I, I'm putting my money in it. I need somebody who's going to guide this. So I did it over and over and over again and uh, actually did a uh, work on a lot of pretty good projects over the years. Um, and then in 2010, um, I met with uh, one of the owners of a piece of dirt uh, by the bay in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. Uh, and with a similar problem, I, he had a, a site 
that he'd had for several years and he needed to get, uh, he couldn't get the numbers to pencil out to build a hotel there. So he had me work on, uh, on what the program might be. And I did. I, I cre- recreated the hotel with a different program uh, and concepts and ran some numbers. And out of that, the Reeds was born. Uh, and so we opened that hotel in 2013. And in that particular case, uh, instead of instead of leaving um, uh, to, uh, to work on another project, uh, I was asked to stay and operate this one. And it did incredibly well it did it did far better than i think the uh the investors ever expected it to to do uh so naturally out of that came other projects um we um uh one of the one of the investors at the reeds and i collectively uh, two of us bought a uh, uh a catering facility that uh we then put money in is now known as the grove at centerton and we did that a few years ago. And then just this past year, we opened a hotel that I've been working on since 2013 uh, called the Riverhouse at Odets in New Hope, which uh, we opened in se- on September 28th, 2020, in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, everyone thought that uh, we were nuts to open at that point because, um, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Sure. But, um, we, we did. We opened. And... Despite um, the pandemic, we were actually doing very well uh, at that hotel. Uh, we have over 100 weddings on the books. Uh, of course, we have to be able to do those weddings to realize that that revenue. Uh, but we're we're actually doing quite well with that. So I just kind of give you a sense of you know of that. So you were fully committed prior to the pandemic in in getting this hotel going, and you were a certain you know distance to your timeline being complete and then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and it was either okay let's stop right here and put the brakes on for the next year or two because nobody knows or everyone at that time thought oh this is just going to be over in a month or two and we'll just business as usual keep going right and you continued moving forward and you opened the hotel i mean that, that must have been incredibly challenging let's let's walk through what happened Let's go back to March of 2020 and talk about what so, happened to you. So in, in March of 2020, um, you know, you start to hear about this Chinese flu in Wuhan and yes. you're not thinking about it. Then it starts to maybe get a little bit closer because it was really late February that you really start. In fact, I remember uh, uh, we went on a trip in February and we wore masks on a plane because we were concerned about it. It was late February. Uh, we never really thought it was going to be much because mm-hmm. these things, they seem to come and they go usually until this happened. Uh, so um, we had already hired our general manager uh, uh, and she had been on board uh, for probably eight months at that point. We had extended offers to other members of the executive committee. Um, and then it, it, when it hit in mid-March, it hit like a ton of bricks for all of us. Um, and for the river house, um, we made a very quick, we did not know what, how things were going to go. We thought it could be two weeks, but we thought it could also be a year. We didn't know. We just didn't know. So we actually, um, did some pretty deep, aggressive layoffs, um, right away, uh, knowing that, you know, it could be just for, be for a couple of weeks or it could be longer. 
Um, and we had been scheduled at that time to open the hotel in June. And so here it is. We're just like three months away from opening. And the finishing touches are being put on. Um, so we got to, the, we, we, we were at this point and um, as uh, we, we weren't even allowed to do construction at that time because all activities at the hotel, including all the construction, had to be stopped. So that went on probably for about five or six weeks until we were able to do construction again. And then as we started to do construction, we started to plan for an opening uh, and we developed a new schedule uh, based on having us open sometime in September. And uh, and once we established that schedule, we didn't veer from it a day. Uh, the hardest part of opening a hotel in the pandemic was actually hiring people because um, you have a workforce that um, is severely diminished by the fact that, you know, kids aren't in school. So, you know, whereas two people can work before, now only one can work. You have a lot of people uh, getting an enhanced unemployment, Correct. Um, which, you know, mm -hmm. created an environment where some people felt that it was disadvantageous for them to work. And then you also um, had this idea that we're opening up a brand new hotel that no one knew if you're a server, you don't know if it's going to be a moneymaker or not. You just don't know um, if it's going to work. So it's, and of course you have to go through hiring in the middle of a pandemic. You're doing Skype interviews and yes, it's, it's, the hardest thing I've had to do, uh, you know, happened between March and September, uh, between laying off, you know, a couple hundred people uh, and trying to reopen, <laughs> reopen and, and eventually open, uh, you know, the river house in September. But then all the protocols, the safety procedures, the plexiglass, the distancing, the sanitization, and there's a lot of square footage in a hotel. There's a lot of touchable surfaces. I mean, Wow. Right? What an overwhelming process to figure out how deep you have to go, how often you have to do it, how you got to train your team to go through all those policies and procedures, and then communicate all those best practices that's keeping your, your guests safe to the, you know, to your target market. I mean, right? That's crazy. Well, fortunately, the American Hotel and Lodging Association and the National Restaurant Association uh, have been at the forefront of uh, helping us with helping all of the industry with guidelines, uh, which of course you follow and then try to obviously enhance. Yes. Um, I think, I think that actually executing the, the protocols is, is not as hard as communicating those protocols to your guests, because if you're venturing out and you've been locked down and now you want to see if you want to go to a hotel, you know, you have to communicate uh, to your guests that it's going to be safe. So, um, and, and, and then of course, you've got to train your staff. I remember when the, when the uh, pandemic first started uh, and, we, and then we were first open, uh, of course, you know, all your, all your staff has to wear masks. I remember in the early parts of the, protocol, in the, uh, of the pandemic or the reopening, it was, um, it was a chore to get people to really yes. wear their mask properly. Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, but, uh, you know, it was coming down over their nose. It didn't fit properly around their ears. And, you know, and that was, a, it was hard. But as the pandemic wore on, that become, became almost a non-problem. I, I don't have to correct anybody on how to wear a mask anymore. They all know how to wear a mask. Uh, and in fact, it's just become second nature 
for everyone to do so. People have found masks that are that are comfortable enough for them, uh, and they've also found, um, you know, that it's not as hard to, you know, to exist and breathe in a mask as as maybe it was when you first started. We've all cut kind of gotten used to, you know, to the protocol, so um, we we're good at it now. I think that's I think this I've heard that from other people in the industry too that, that while it was a a chore for the first few months, it's it not it, it's not not longer a problem, no longer a problem. Let's go back to training. You just mentioned training, and that's a key part of what I what I really want to get into because there are training, you know, specific, um, you know, nuances in a hotel that go above and beyond a restaurant. You know, the ty- everything. Well, it's it's very similar, of course, but there's so many you know staff that are interacting with customers above and beyond a restaurant setting in all areas. We're talking about outdoor maintenance and landscaping, and you know housekeeping personnel and front desk people and bellhops and everyone needs to have a certain philosophy of what hospitality means and then how to deliver that hospitality and go above and beyond so that the customer feels like they're the only customer in the hotel even though it might have 400 or 4,000 other people in it right so where does it begin with you because I know that's a foundational element of of your success and you must have your own leadership style, of course, which you can tell us about. And then what are the training philosophies and how do you train? And this is pre-pandemic. And then after pandemic or during pandemic is a whole different, you know, piece of it. Well, for me, uh, selecting employees uh, and training employees starts with what we started our conversation about, which is passion. Um, you know, what I've learned through, you know, my decades in the, uh, in the business is that you can't train passion into somebody. They either are are passionate about mm-hmm. what they do or they're not. Uh, and whether and whether it's uh, you know someone on the culinary team or a server or a housekeeper or a front desk agent, if they don't have passion for what they do, that lack of passion is going to be communicated in, a, in not such a good way to the customer. And frankly, if they do have passion. And they're and they're um, and they communicate that the right way to the guest. Um, a, a lot of what the customer, the guest receives, um, is through is, is seen through the eyes of that passionate employee. Um, and you know, if you if you have a small hiccup that in, in your service or in your product that you don't um, you know suffer uh, you know the unhappiness of the guest as to the extent that you would if you didn't have that person. So it really starts with, we call it hiring the right person and unhiring the wrong people. Uh, and we, we talk about passion a lot. Um, we do, um, you know, we do a fairly comprehensive orientation so people understand what our core values are. Uh, but more than that, we show them um, through our actions what our core values are. Uh, and if you were to come to one of our properties, you would see a tremendous and diverse mix of, of people. It's, it, it, you know, we, we started uh, an internship with Penn State about seven years ago. Uh, and this summer, we will have uh, almost 30 Penn State and other colleges, too, including we have a couple international uh, universities that send students to us. Uh, we have a number of students that come to us, and you know what's great about having, of mixing in that those kids, those young professionals, they the one thing that they have in abundance is passion. 
They're young, they're exuberant. And when you bring that element in, and you mix that in with the rest of your team, it's contagious. Absolutely. At the, at, at the reads, when we bring the interns in, um, it's, it changes the chemistry of the hotel almost overnight. And they bring with them um, just such an infectious degree of enthusiasm and passion. And we, for the times that we have them, we nurture that. And we nurture their passion and we encourage them, uh, you know, to interact with the guests. We put them, we rotate them throughout the hotel. We show them what hospitality means to us. I meet with them every, every other Friday. I do a lunch with them and we talk, uh, at the, for these internship lunches, we talk about two things. And the one thing we talk about, first of all, number one is we ask them, um, about, to tell two stories when we go around the table. We ask them for their their best guest experience in the last two weeks and their worst guest experience in the last two weeks. And when you hear 30 kids going around a room and talking about that, it's amazing how much growth they get out of that. Oh, totally. Um, and then, of course, the other question is you want, you want to communicate with your interns and find out, you know, how can we make your internship more meaningful to you? And between that and tying it back to the university and their studies, you have you have now, um, in a good way, infected your staff with all of that energy. Likewise, we have we we are active participants, especially at the Reeds, but also will be at the Riverhouse uh, in the in the J one program where you bring international students in, and they bring a different kind of passion and a different kind of energy. Um, and you're by by having uh, all of these um, somewhat diverse but but passionate people come together, um, you develop a an energy for the hotel that helps create the guest experience. Which, fortunately for us, we hear from guests that it's very memorable and people want to come back. So that that to me is important. I I think that um, one of the one of the um, things that hospitality um, uh, professionals are not necessarily good at is fresh passion into the ranks. Like it's important to have um, obviously the people that are there day in and day out, but through internships and other um, uh, other opportunities to, to, to introduce new people that are excited into the mix, you really create uh, a more vibrant uh, team staff. So that goes back to training, right? Because, uh, you know, how do you train someone in hospitality? How do you train someone in service? How do you, because it's not the customer is always right. That's, it was that way 40 years ago because now we know through experience, the customer is not always right. But it's about maximizing for them the experience they have while they're at the property. Uh, it's about creating an opportunity for them to experience uh, uh, the, uh, the the hospitality that your staff has uh, at the highest possible level. Um, I, I I like to say that um, uh, you know people define individuals experience hospitality at as the way they feel about themselves when they're in a certain space. You know, when you go into a space and just kind of feel really good about yourself and you feel you have a certain feeling 
like and regardless of what the space is, yeah, if it's if it's a you know it's you know and you know sometimes you got to go back to your youth to connect with what that feels like. You know, when you walk in and you feel like you feel all your energy. Uh, you feel really good about everything. That's the energy you really try to create with your guests to get to that luxury lifestyle uh, segment. Uh, because when a person walks into, um, you know, a you know mid-scale chain restaurant, they're not going to feel that. They're going to feel a certain other way. That's going to set the market expectations for that property. As opposed, when they walk into us, we want we want them to feel really great about themselves, so that they feel like they're at a place where they can relax and be be home. Guys, take it from me. From one operator to another, I'll tell it to you straight. Nobody likes greasy pots and pans. And I want to keep my dish guys happy. So we upgraded to Dawn Professional Pot and Pan. Dawn Professional cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink than our old soap, the so-called leading competitor. Less dish soap means fewer sink changeovers and a happier dish crew. Try Dawn Professional in your place. It's clean, upgraded. Do you find that uh, some of the international people that you've brought on board bring a different work ethic to the table than, say, you know, their American counterparts? Um, it's it varies. Um, it's interesting. It depends on. I've seen it, it, it be different years. It say it's different. Mm-hmm. I would say it is different, uh, but uh, it's 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 not always like that they work harder because we have a lot of American kids that work incredibly hard. Um, it's it's more of a it's a different energy mm-hmm. that they bring, um, and a lot depends on where they come from, uh, what part of Europe they're from, right? Uh, and uh, we've we've had um, you know very good. Um, uh, interns, uh, you know, throughout all of Europe, uh, and uh, it's just—I it, it, I won't say it's a better work ethic. I would just say that it's a, it's more of it's a different culture, a different work ethic. Uh, it's always fun when they speak a different language. Yes, and, yes. Um, and you know, you find that that our American kids are picking up on on that uh, language as well. But I think the guests appreciate the international flavor and the accents and just the character that that brings to a property. You know, it sets you apart. I believe that that really, really works. And that's part of the ambiance of the hotel is the staff, the hospitality, the flavor. But there is that international sort of je ne sais quoi or intrigue that the guest relates to and appreciates. Agree. Yeah, that's certainly a part of what we we try to do with both properties. Hmm. Now, a while back earlier in the conversation, you had mentioned that you opened a property that exceeded your investors' expectations. Let's talk about what those things were that really made this thing a grand slam home run when you had a certain expectation and it just you know blew that out of the water. Like, what would you say? What were those? <laughs> so when we opened the Reeds uh, at Shelter Haven in 2013, um, we opened with 37 guest rooms. We had um, an, an outdoor restaurant called the Water Star Grill and an inside restaurant called Saks. We had capacity for weddings. Uh, and the, when we first, and we opened on June 20th, 2013, right into the teeth of the summer. Uh, and we were 
crushed with business right out of the box. Um, and, um, we had, it was, it was sort of like trying to tame a wild lion because you had to, you know, we, we, uh, we had, anytime when you open up a property, you're going to have hiccups. Uh, and when you're busy, you tend to have more hiccups. Uh, and when you're, when you're much busier than you thought you'd be, yes, of you know, course, you have even more hiccups. So, um, at the water star grill, when we opened, um, the, uh, the, the kitchen, uh, frankly, the kitchen over the first four weeks were open, probably crashed three times a week. And your restaurant tours know what that feels like, uh, mm. to have your kitchen go down, especially your new property. Uh, you know, and it was taking just too long to get food out. And what was happening was we, we had a, um, uh, a course style of service in the outdoor restaurant and we were getting inundated with large parties. And as everybody knows, large parties can crash your kitchen. Of course. So, so midway through that first summer, we had to pivot and go to an uncoursed push concept, which was more of a share plate concept. And it fixed things instantly where, um, when, whenever you ordered, whatever you ordered would come out as it was produced. Uh, and, and the food was more made uh, for sharing. And we've been that way ever since, you know, this is go- going into what our ninth summer uh, at, at the Water Star. Ninth summer? Yeah, at the Water Star Grill. So um, we, we quickly found a way to ramp up our revenue. We increased our seating. Um, we now have at the Water Star Grill, we have 365 seats in this one outdoor restaurant. I like to tell people uh, that for 10 weeks, we do double the volume of a cheesecake factory That's with, amazing. A kitchen, with a kitchen one-tenth the size and a, sta- and a staff that knows they're going to get laid off in September. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> and it is, it is incredible. Uh, so um, as properties next to us became available we acquired them um we first acquired a property uh, just to our south and we opened up a taqueria uh where we sell you know ten dollar tacos and twelve dollar margaritas and it's it's a pretty small place it's, it's actually it's not very big it maybe has 80 seats uh, but it's it's on the bay and it's it's fun and that little tiny place was ten dollar uh, that has ten dollar tacos and twelve dollar margaritas can do twenty thousand dollars a day in that little place and so we opened that and then we opened up we we bought another building next to us or this time to the north and uh, that we put a pizza operation in it was a it was a, a, a it was a pizza operation, but we reinvented it as a pizza and beer operation, and so we continued to expand that way. And then, of course, we decided that in order to help with our seasonality, we would build a spa and we build more rooms. So uh, about uh, a year and a half ago, we opened up a spa uh, and we opened up more rooms, and uh, and it's it's done far better than. Uh, the investors initially expected it to do. Of course, now that we're humming every year, it's supposed to be a home run. So, uh, but that's okay because we, we're we're always improving our product and and improving our bottom line as well. 
Is there a marketing piece or a location piece that contributed to that success? I mean, how did you create the buzz? Because buzz has so much to do with, you know, an image, an aura, what people think before it actually opens, what people are drawn to or what they think it's going to be before they actually experience it. And then online reviews certainly kick in after that, delivering on the promises. I mean, it's got to be, it's, I mean, it's a combination of all of those things, but right out of the gate, it sounds like you did amazing and something drew those people to that property. What do you think that was? So, so, so the initial thing that drew people to the property was a location. Uh, we're on the bay. We're in Stone Harbor. It's a it's a great market, um, and it was uh, it was a great spot to build a hotel. And what we built was hit the market exactly where they wanted to get hit. Um, I will um, give a lot of the credit to our growth and our continuing success to our marketing department. Uh, you know, we're we don't have a flag. We have our own. We, we do our own marketing internally. Um, so we have a vice president of sales and marketing, Julie Yeager, uh, for, uh, for refined hospitality. She's been with me for nine years and her, uh, Julie and her team have curated over, over that time, a tremendous, uh, brand, um, uh, and now to the other two properties as well. I've got to ask you the question, hotel restaurants, and you may have a full hotel, but there's something about a hotel restaurant that either draws you in or people naturally want to go out into the community and find what's hot, what's cool. How do, what, what is the key to getting an amazing dynamic experience in a hotel restaurant and stopping people at the front doors so that they, you know, dine in your restaurant or restaurants when you have multiple properties in a hotel? That's a great question because I, of course, I came up with Marriott early on in my career. Right. And, and it was like, oh, the hotel restaurant. It's just a hotel restaurant. Uh, and, you know, I think that over the course of, you know, the last 20 years that, the, that it, it's, it's okay now for hotel restaurant to be a really cool operation. Right. So. Um, it is. I, I think I, I think that um, many restaurateurs or many hoteliers look at a restaurant as a necessary evil. I mean, I can't tell you when I was up when I was doing a lot of my consulting, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of uh, hoteliers that just wanted to lease out their restaurant operation with nothing to do with it. Just want to do rooms, rooms, rooms because of you know the, the headaches and the expense that goes with running a restaurant. Well, we take the exact opposite approach. We have the the restaurants drive the hotel. So um, I'm a restaurant guy. I came up in restaurants. I've always been a restaurant guy. Um, and, I've, and I've used the food and beverage part of my brain uh, to elevate the hotel part of my brain. So uh, what you find if you come to uh, one of my hotels, you'll find restaurants that if they were not in a hotel, you would never know they were in a hotel. So there are a lot of people that don't stay in our in our hotels that come to our restaurants at our hotel, which is you know the opposite of what it used to be thirty years ago. Of course. So, um, so I I think I think that uh, if you're a hotelier, uh, you have to look at your restaurants as restaurants. Um, you also have to 
you have to demand um, certain financial uh, parameters as well. Like we we are we're really good at running our numbers. Um, you know, I run you know twenty seven percent food costs uh, like clockwork in all of our restaurants. Fantastic. Yes. You know, we run eighteen to twenty percent beverage costs. Uh, our labor numbers are good. Uh, we we are really good at running numbers. Uh, so it makes it a lot more palatable, of course, to be in the restaurant business if you make money at it. Absolutely. Uh, and the margins are so slim anyway. So, you know, those types of um, obviously contributing to a low prime cost is you're making money. Right. So and we're, we're consistently running those kinds of numbers. You know, you talk about uh, hotel restaurants, and I, I actually turned that whole thing on its head at the River House. Uh, we created Roof. I don't know if um, if uh, you know about our little private club uh, at the River House, but we created uh, a rooftop restaurant uh, called Roof. And originally, when we were planning, it's, it's, by the way, it's 85 seats. Three quarters of it is outdoors. Uh, and of course, the part that's indoors has a nano wall, so it completely opens up to the outside. And you're on the roof, overlooking the Delaware River. It's gorgeous. Um, so our the original reason why I wanted to make that a private club was I was concerned about if it was not private, people going up and down the elevator past our guest room floors from a security perspective. Mm-hmm. And I also was nervous about the guest yes. experience at roof. You ever get off an elevator into a restaurant and you open it up and you can't get off the elevator? Right, because there's so many people there, and it just kind of takes. I mean, it's exciting to see all these people, but it also kind of takes the fun out of it when you really you can't even move. I was worried about that. Yes. So we just so, um, and the second reason I wanted to make it private was um, that if I made this restaurant good enough and exciting enough as a restaurant, people would stay at my hotel because of the restaurant, because they could use the restaurant because they were hotel guests. And we looked at it, at it as an ADR builder. So you could stay at one of my competitors, maybe for less money, but you can't go to roof unless you're either a member or you're a hotel guest. And of course, the thing that we didn't expect was making roof available uh, at $1,000 a piece uh, last January, they they sold out in a week, and then we opened up a waiting list, and we put over six hundred on the waiting list, and then closed that because it was like, how am I gonna how am I gonna manage this? Um, so people were always asking us, how do I hey, how do I get a membership to roof? How do I get it? And you created you know we created this idea of a hotel the hotel restaurant that is just spectacular people are clamoring to come up there and be there and it's it, it turns the whole concept of hotel restaurant on its head where it's it's the it's this is the restaurant that drives the hotel Let me ask that's you really the attitude yeah that 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 that's the attitude that we have uh at refined 
I got a really good picture of, of the ambiance and what it feels like to be in roof. And I got to ask you, has New Hope, Pennsylvania changed much in the last 35 years? Because I was there with a girlfriend in college, 1985. I remember sitting on the banks of the Delaware River, eating Coquille St. Jacques and drinking a glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> and I remember that to this day while the sleepy river just kind of meanders by us. And it, and it was this small sort of um, really eclectic community on the Delaware River. And I think we had just come over from Princeton, New Jersey, right? Because my girlfriend was from New Jersey. And that's what I remember about New Hope. That was 35 or 36 years ago. Is it still like that? Yes, it is. It actually is. I, um, I will tell you that um, I was there um, – probably a little earlier than you were uh, sitting on the bank of the river with, with a girl, maybe not having Coquille St. Jacques or Chardonnay. It was probably more like a burger and a, and a beer. Um, but yeah, um, right, right. it's, but you know, but you know, but I used to go up to new hope as a kid, hmm. uh, you know, cause it was just a great eclectic community to come. It was, I remember uh, that. It was a, an art colony. <laughs> I lived, I lived about, half an hour away growing up so it was accessible to me and i would i would come up here so i fell in love with the area and a lot of those people that were there that were our age at the time we were there are still here uh but also because of its proximity to manhattan and philadelphia and it's it's, it's also become a better community for a number of fortune 500 ceos uh, a lot of people uh, in business, uh, it's, it's a very wealthy, affluent community, not just within the borough itself, but, you know, the outlying areas to the community. So it's, it is very much an eclectic town. Uh, the people are wonderful in New Hope. Um, and uh, I, I am very grateful to be part of that community. That's fantastic. Thanks for bringing me back there because those are just good memories. So let me ask you something about, let's go back to hospitality for a minute, because you run boutique hotels, and everyone knows or has a certain expectation of what a boutique hotel should be. And, you know, there are some nationally known hotel companies that operate boutique hotels. And I went to pre-pandemic, this was probably June of 2019, say. Mm -hmm. I went to a birthday party, a close friend's birthday party in Boston, and we stayed at a boutique hotel just outside of Boston. And it was a nationally known hotel. We were looking forward to the experience. So the landscaping was immaculate. The entry was beautiful. The, the design of the hotel, everything about that experience, the lobby, the furniture, the greeting at the front desk, all that was, as you would expect, exemplary. You're treated like a rock star. I love that. That's great, right? <coughs> So then we get our, our, you know, our room key or whatever, and we're given directions to the room. We get in the elevator, and the very first thing that happened was I remember this elevator having a door on both sides. So we entered in this side, and there's a door on the opposite side. And for some odd reason, it stops, and the door opens on the other side. And it's not the hallway leading to our room, but it's a, a maintenance closet full of like janitorial supplies and all this kind of stuff. And I don't know how that happened, whether there was someone, you know, a hotel personnel that pressed the button to get into the elevator. But I was curious why, okay, why you're sharing that and why it opens up into a maintenance closet. That's my first, my second impression after the great greeting. We get to our hallway and now I'm seeing, you know, 
room service dishes and platters outside of a room. I'm seeing walking a little bit farther, there's like the sheets where the housekeeping team had just thrown it out into the hallway and we're walking to our room and we're passing by all this detritus of the ex- behind the scenes experience. Right. We walk into our room. The room is beautiful. The furniture is great. The bed's comfortable. The shower is really cool and glassy and the view is awesome. But now right. there's like all kinds of fingerprints, like some kid that just checked out of the room, just stuck his hands all over this window. Someone let that go. So there were like all these little nuances of the experience that kind of ruined the big picture of what the expectations were. Overall, it was a good stay, a good experience. The staff were friendly. They were courteous. They were pleasant. Um, we were treated well. But there were all these minor little glitches. And I'm just curious how that stuff happens because clearly a GM of that hotel is in charge of policies and procedures that said never ever throw you know sheets out into the hallway and how do we contain all this stuff that you don't want the guests to see you know obviously if a customer or a guest in a hotel orders room service sure they're going to put the dishes outside how do you avoid these things from happening to not tarnish the next guest's experience that i'll tell you what your description of that made me made my stomach turn because uh, you know I, I I read every feedback form that comes back every one of our properties, uh, and you know and I look for something like that. I look for all the little things that you know you, you can do all the big things right, and you mess up the middle things, the, the the little things, and your experience is is tarnished. It's it's ruined. Uh, so the one thing that that I do to this day. Um, and I, and I do it because I want my GMs to do it is I walk the halls of the hotel. I walk the halls of the hotel. Actually, what I do is I go to the front desk of the hotel. I'm the mm-hmm. CEO of a company that has, yes. you know, $50 million of revenue. Right. But I I'll go to the hotel and I say, you know, what, what are your occupied rooms? And they tell me the occupied rooms. And I literally, I will go usually around four o'clock, uh, and I'll walk the halls and I'll go, I'll just do my own random room inspections all right now if i do a room inspection then you know that my gm is going to do a room inspection now, if the gm does a room inspection you know that the rooms division director is going to do a uh, a, a, a thorough room inspection as well the housekeeping manager so it really comes down to eyes on the guest experience and it it sounds simple, but walking the calls and randomly checking rooms is the the way to communicate to your team that mistakes like the ones that you encountered will not be tolerated. Absolutely. It's that simple. I mean, it really is that simple. Just walk the halls. Walk the halls. Well, I've always said, you know, that the restaurant business is one of a thousand details, and you mentioned it earlier, and even if you get 990 of those big picture things right, it's the 10 you miss that the customer or the guest always sees. But there's got to be 2,000 details in a hotel because that just takes the the restaurant situation to the nth degree with so many many more people, so many more guest interactions, so many more, you know, places that we can touch guests in a personal way or drop the ball and, and lose them forever. It's, I can only imagine what it's, you know, what is required of a, a, a really rock solid GM in a hotel, you know, it's well, attention it's, to detail uh, times 10. 
so um, it takes attention to detail times 10. It takes a good manager uh, that'll talk to and listen to employees. Yes. It'll take someone that's passionate mm-hmm. uh, and cares, like cares from the bottom of their soul. Um, and it takes somebody um, that, you know, can think on their feet because things happen. Things happen in hotels. You know, mm-hmm. you have a you have an HVAC unit fail. It happens all the time. You know, you have, um, <coughs> you know, you're, uh, uh, you know, one of your food supply trucks uh, didn't make it. Now you're got an 86, you know, number of items. There are things that, that happen that you just have to manage through that you can't even predict. Uh, and by the way, you're going to have some guests that are just not going to be happy no matter what you can't what you please do. them. Some people you just can't please no matter what. Yes. You can't please them. And right. maybe they came in looking for a fight. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe there are problems mm-hmm. wherever they go. But you just, you got to handle them all the right way. Uh, so at the end of the day, you gotta, you gotta win those, um, you know, you know, the war. So you gotta, because you might lose a battle here and there, but you're going to win the war if you're, if you're managing it the right way. Is this something that happens, or I should say, is this something that's routinely discussed in, in your high level meetings and with your, you know, your GMs of hotels talking about how you want to damage control or put a positive spin on a negative guest experience to save the day? I mean. What are your philosophies on that? When it's justified, of course, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so we look, uh, like I said, I look at every review that comes in, uh, internal and external review. I look at them to see what's being said. And like any one review doesn't really bother me, but when you look at, um, when when you look at it in in totality is when you really get concerned. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we do, um, spent a lot of time, and I spent a lot of time with the general managers talking about dealing with un- an unhappy guest and how you deal with them. And we have parameters for what that looks like. And, um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, it's just a phone call. Sometimes, um, you know, you have to give, invite somebody to come back with a, you know, an attractive offer. Um, but you also have to, you got to be cognizant that there are some people out there that are complaining solely for the reason of getting something for nothing. Of course. I know. I, 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 I learned that lesson. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Restaurants, way. too. Yeah. I, well, I got to tell you, so when we opened in 2013 at the Reeds, and I was there as early on, and uh, I got I was summoned over to a table of husband and wife, and uh, and the husband said to me, you're going to cop our, our, our dinner. And I said, why, what was the, what was wrong? What was the problem? No, there's nothing wrong. But if you don't cop my dinner, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a nasty review about you. Wow. So wait a minute. So you're just telling me that if I don't cop your dinner, you're gonna just trash me on social media? Because yeah, that's exactly what I'm gonna do. So get to the road. Like really, just go don't do your worst. I mean, imagine if I said. Unbelievable. Okay, I'll copy your dinner. They're just going to keep coming back and send their friends and tell them to say the same thing. Lack of character right there. Oh, that's that's a horrible... Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, yes. We have experienced this in our restaurants and in our hotel properties. Right. There are people out there that you... Well, yeah, they're looking for something for nothing, and then there are people that you just can't please. And it's a real fine line between, well, you ate 90% of it, and I'm just hearing about it now, yet you want me to comp your meal or... It's awful, right? It, it's 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 awful, um, and you always 
err on the side of the customer. Um, you always look at it from their perspective and you always try to work with them. But at some point you realize that you're kind of being taken. Um, and the last thing you want to do is encourage that behavior exactly uh, because you'll don't mm-hmm. you'll, you'll just create more of it absolutely i agree with that let me ask you ron um you believe that health and safety are right now the greatest luxuries in your properties how do you strike a balance without compromising you know that luxury guest experience but by providing the health and the safety aspect where is the balance there well so uh, it, in, in order to get to luxury you have to get past health and safety you can't, it's like, what do they say? Maslow's hierarchy. Mm-hmm. You got to yes. get past, you know, sur- survival to get to self-actualization. So, um, so for me, um, luxury assumes health and safety. Um, uh, and, 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 and by the way, health and safety might be, uh, might have a little bit different meaning for different people because, um, some, some people, um, even in this day and age are kind of offended by putting, they don't want to put a mask on when they're inside. Yeah. Um, and which, which will offend 95% of your other customers. Mm-hmm. All right. So, you know, there's an example where you have to, you have to stick by your guns and stick by the protocol and respect the wishes of the majority of your customers. But in order to create an atmosphere of luxury, people have to first feel safe. They have to feel protected and they have to feel somewhat nurtured in order to get to luxury. So um, we actually have within our company, we have a safety and compliance manager. His only job, his only job is to kind of bird dog health and safety issues uh, at all of the properties. He goes from property to property, uh, you know, and of course the operations people look at him like, can he be a pest? But that's his job. Yeah. Go out and do that. So critically important right now, critically important, all the safety protocols. Uh, and it's not just COVID related. It's anything that relates to health and safety of employees mm-hmm. and guests yeah. uh, is exactly what this guy's job is. Hazardous so, and hazards and negligence as well. I'm sure. Right. Sure. All, all the, all the above. Mm-hmm. And, sure. and you have to, you have to also take care of the health and safety, not only of your guests, but your employees. Have you had any confrontational situations with guests? Because it's been a divided nation and there are certain people that don't feel that need, they need to wear a mask in public. And then there are those that obviously are hyper vigilant to protect themselves and others. And the two clash in restaurants all the time. And, and there are certain states that made it absolutely mandatory to have masks in any public space. And then there are states that had relaxed rules. Yet, how do you combine those two things? Like it was just a tinderbox for a while, and it remains to be at sometimes. It, it does, um, although it's not as bad as it was when it first started. Mm. Um, it seems to a lot of that fire. It seems to have subsided from where it was over the summer and the early fall. Um, and there have been uh, in our hotels uh, some people that you know, had to be asked to leave and yes, unfortunately. Yeah. And you know, there was, there were some negative experiences that our staff had with some guests, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, we just have to err on the side of safety, uh, for the benefit of the greater, uh, the greater good and the greater uh, number of guests. Well, I'm optimistic. I mean, I believe we're 
looking ahead to the future and that things are much improved than what they were months ago. And even though we hear about new strains and all this other kind of stuff, the vaccine is a positive. I believe the new administration is a positive. And I'm definitely seeing a brighter outlook in this industry overall with, with clients and customers and restaurant operators. And those that have made it this far are going to survive and succeed in the future if they, if they do the right thing and dig deep and continue to be resourceful. Yeah, I agree. I think that the, uh, I think we're through the worst of it. Um, I do think that uh, it's nice to see the numbers finally dropping substantially. Uh, But, you know, there's still a lot of people are unfortunately are still dying. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, a lot of people are are still getting sick. So um, we have to continue to be vigilant. Uh, I I think it's going to be a few months before people really feel comfortable in having weddings and uh, social events where they were. Uh, and, but I, I think it's even longer before corporations begin to uh, do corporate uh, group meetings because they're, they're even more, more vigilant. Yes. Uh, but, but I, I, I think we're not going to see that maybe until the later part of this year. Well, Ron, I certainly appreciate having you as a guest. You've shared so many insights into not only running restaurants, but running high-end hotels and everything in between and, you know, what a guest is really looking for. And I think there's been a lot of key nuggets to, to having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Guys, I was so inspired talking to Ron. You know, hospitality is really the foundation of everything we do. Whether you run a hotel or you want to run a restaurant operation, it really comes down to that magic word, hospitality. You know, I learned a long time ago that hospitality is present when something happens for the customer and it's absent when something happens to the customer. Remember that and train your staff in that too because they're the ones interacting with your guests each and every day, making those impressions that count. And obviously you want to give them great experiences and you also want to get those positive online reviews. So thanks again to Ron and our sponsor this week, Dawn Professional Dish Liquid. Now you've heard this before, but it's absolutely true. I love talking to operators. I love talking shop and I just have such a passion for the business and I love to help out whenever I can. I offer a 30 minute free, no obligation consultation call. You can talk to me about anything, any challenges you're having in your restaurant, any pain points. You wanna talk about systems or how you can spend less time at your restaurant and get greater results. Why not reach out to me, Roger, R-O-G-E-R at restaurantrockstars.com. Again, if you like like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on iTunes and it'll help other owner operators or general managers find us. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. See you next time.